0: Welcome to Eyes on Conservation. to a very special episode of the Eyes on Conservation podcast produced in partnership with Radio Boise. Eyes on Conservation is a weekly podcast series that brings you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. The series is produced by Boise-based nonprofit organization, Wild Lens. I'm Matt Podolsky, and I will be your host for today's episode of the show, in which we will discuss a truly unique swath of public land, the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. This jewel of the National Conservation Land System is found just south of Boise, and this year it's celebrating 25 years since its designation. We talked with two individuals who are playing crucial roles in the continued management and conservation of this NCA on today's
1: episode of the show.
2: I'm Amanda Hoffman. I'm the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area Manager.
1: I'm Steve Alsop. I'm the president of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership. (laughs) Excellent. Well, it's wonderful to have both of you
0: here in the studio to have this little conversation. I, I guess one of the reasons we're here is um, because we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the designation of this National Conservation Area. Um, so it seems like a good opportunity to kind of like talk about, you know, a little bit about the history of this unique NCA um, and also just introduce people to this National Conservation Area, which is very close to Boise. Um, I think a lot of people who even li- live in Boise, maybe aren't aware or maybe haven't visited it. So let's start there. I mean, what is the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Bray National Conservation Area?
2: So the NCA, which is what we call it, um, is about half a million acres south of Boise, roughly between Mountain Home and the Snake River on the west, and then the Snake River on the south to, you know, about 10 miles south of Boise. It's managed by the Bureau of Land Management, and it was designated a national conservation area because it has the largest and densest population of nesting raptors in North America, if not the world, in addition to some pretty incredible cultural resource values and scientific and educational opportunities.
0: Very cool. And so you're the director of this NCA. Wh- what does that mean? Like, what are your, what are your responsibilities?
2: Uh, so they're, they're pretty broad, actually. Um, being BLM-managed lands, we have a whole lot of um, activities that happen out on the NCA. So it's everything from um, the administrative, managing staff, budget, workload, to um, working with the users of public land to authorize activities like livestock grazing, transmission lines, and uh, working really closely with the Idaho Army National Guard, which has the Orchard Combat Training Center in the NCA.
0: So, Steve, you're the president of the Birds of Prey NCA partnership, which is a friends group of the NCA. I mean, maybe you can explain a little bit about like what that means and how this friends group came into being.
1: Yeah, so um, our organization is a, is a Boise-based nonprofit, um, and it came together a few years ago. We were founded in 2015, um, and it was basically a a group of people who sort of love and care for the NCA and saw that it could use some help, um, with support and management. And so we got together and formed an organization to, um, help BLM and protecting the values of the NCA.
0: Yeah. And, Full disclosure here, um, I am one of those people that uh, came together to uh, assist in that process, and I am on the board of directors for the Birds of Prey NCA partnership. Um, so I also have a, a vested interest in um, conserving this unique patch of public land south of Boise. I mean, maybe, Steve, maybe you can talk a little bit more like, about this relationship and because i mean this is something that is not just going on um at this particular national conservation area but lots of ncas um all around the country um are you know sort of developing relationships with nonprofit groups that sort of call themselves friends groups i mean maybe you can talk a little bit about like that larger phenomenon and then like what that means here for us
1: right um yeah there are ncas across the west uh several of them uh and most of them i think at this point have a a group of supporters that have Put a friends group together. Uh, being a nonprofit, we have certain toolset that the BLM might not be able to utilize. We can accept donations, uh, which is a big one, um, and then we're um, able to do a few things that the BLM uh, can't do. And we just really come together to support the NCA. There's a lot of, a lot of different ways that we can help out.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, one, one of those ways that, that I think is, is, I mean, there's a lot, right? And I mean, I think we can talk a little bit about, you know, what that means um, as we are celebrating the 25th anniversary of the NCA. But, uh, I mean, it's also about advocacy, right? I mean, there are certain things that BLM can't do as a government agency. Um, right. So that's an important part of it as well. Um, I kind of want to take a step back here and, you know, just... Chat with each of you guys a little bit about like how you got to this point. Let's start with you, Amanda. Maybe you can talk a little bit about like the path that has led to you taking this position as as the director of the NCA.
2: Sure. So I was born in Boise, Idaho. Although I grew up primarily in uh, Utah, Wyoming, but we moved back to Boise when I was a senior in high school, and I graduated from high school here. And then I got my uh, bachelor's in political science from Boise State University and my master's in public administration. And the master's program here has a natural resource and policy administration tract. And so by the time I'd, I'd been back in Boise for a while, I'd really fallen in love with public lands. And I didn't have a lot of hope to be able to work for a public land management agency. I wasn't a biologist. I wasn't a botanist. I didn't have that science background. Um, but I knew it was something that I loved, and so I decided to take those classes. And about a year after I got my master's, um, a job opened up in Twin Falls, Idaho, with the BLM, and it was for a writer-editor position working on a a resource management plan and at that point I had done a lot of technical writing and I'd been published and so I managed to get that position and uh, was in Twin Falls for about four years and fell in love with BLM and with its mission Um, but in the BLM if you want to move up you have to move around and so I ended up in Carlsbad New Mexico As a planning and environmental coordinator, which oversees uh, the preparation of environmental documents like environmental impact statements or environmental assessments, and also oversees any long-range planning efforts. Um, And Carlsbad is an oil and gas pilot office, Mm. and I actually really enjoyed working there, but the Chihuahuan Desert was really hard on a girl from Idaho. And so I was there for about a year when I got an opportunity to move to Farmington, New Mexico. And... uh, and worked there for about four years. And during that time, I kind of came to that spot where I needed to decide what I wanted to do with my career, if I wanted to continue to be um, a technical expert, or if I wanted to take the leap into management. And uh, I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And I also decided that I'd been working in oil and gas for a number of years, and I really wanted an opportunity to see the other side of what BLM does. And so I was able to get into uh, BLM's leadership development program called Emerging Leaders and as part of that you do a short-term assignment um, somewhere and I got to be the acting uh, associate monument manager at Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument and just um, fell in love with uh, national conservation lands all over again and as that assignment was winding down the position came open here and it was really that perfect marriage for me of being able to come back home and continuing to work with the BLM and managing a National Conservation Area, which feels at this point a little bit like a lifelong dream. And so um, I was incredibly fortunate to actually get the position and be able to, to come back and manage this area that I've really grown to love.
0: Awesome, awesome. And, and how long ago was that? How long have you been the director of the NCA?
2: So March uh, 2016 is when I came back, so we're coming up on two years.
0: All right, all right. So what has that? What has this experience been like for you? What's it been like to, to come back here?
2: Oh, Boise, I, I love Boise. Boise is home for me, and so being able to come back to um, the community I love and I've got a really strong network of family and friends here has been great. And then um, I the BLM has been a really good fit for me because I – I have a passion for public lands, it's where I recreate, it's where I find my solitude and my inspiration, and I drive a car, and I eat hamburgers, and I like to turn on my lights when I go home, and so it's really that that marriage of multiple use and sustained yield, which Mm -hmm. is the BLM's mission, that just speaks to me so personally, and so continuing to work for the BLM, and in this totally amazing national conservation area, um, Mm -hmm. has just... just been amazing, and we have phenomenal staff, and we get to do really exciting things like the 25th anniversary celebrations, and so it's just been phenomenal.
0: Awesome, awesome. So, Steve, how about you? Um, How did you get to this point? I mean, because, you know, for you, it's a little bit different, right? Like, you weren't applying for a job to play some specific role in managing the NCA. You decided to essentially help create a whole organization to help protect
1: this NCA. Right, yeah. um, Nonprofit work is definitely brand new for me. Uh, My background is as a wildlife biologist. Um, So when I finished my undergraduate degree, I I grew up in Louisiana um, and went to school down there. And and when I finished school, I really wanted to get out and do something new and different. Um, So I took an internship at a national park in California, and that really set me into the world of of being a a wildlife biologist. Um, I got some experience At that park with working with birds of prey and i really kind of fell in love with that group of animals Um, i met someone that said hey if you worked with raptors at this park you should apply for this job in idaho Um, and i had never been to idaho had no idea where i was going but i applied for the job and i got it and my job was to actually work uh, doing raptor surveys in the morley nelson snake river birds of prey nca And I was just floored. I was amazed my first day on the job. At I was like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to spend my days out here. Um, So I worked there uh, and fell in love with the place. And then, sort of like Amanda said, being a a new wildlife biologist, it's a lot of seasonal work, and that makes you bump around from job to job. So um, I had kind of fallen in love with Boise, but I moved around for a little bit, um, working different jobs. Uh, When I decided it was time for grad school, I knew that. Boise was a place I loved. I knew that Boise State University had a, a Raptor Biology Master's Degree, which is the only program in the States of its kind. Um, so Boise seemed like a good fit, and I got lucky enough to get into that program, uh, finish school, um, bounced around a little bit more, but Boise kept pulling me back in. Uh, so when the opportunity arose to, to create a group that supports this NCA, it seemed like a really natural fit. Um, I had already fallen in love with the area, and, and it, if I could put my wildlife, you know, biology um, knowledge to help support this NCA, it seemed like something that I really wanted to be a part of.
0: Awesome. And, you know, you touched on, I think, a key component of this NCA, which is, and I mean, it's in the name, birds of prey, right? Um, This is an NCA that is well known for really high densities of raptors and for a few specific raptors as well. Um, I mean, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about like that that first project that brought you to Idaho and brought you to the NCA. Um, I mean, what was that about? And like, I mean, was it just the beautiful scenery that was, you know, sort of pulled you in or like, was it something about like the,
1: the birds themselves? Uh, it was a little bit of both. Um, like we've sort of touched on this NCA is home to one of the densest populations of, of raptors, uh, in the, in the country, if not the world. Uh, and I, I, I had read about that as I came to take this job, but until I put myself into the canyon um, first day of work, I had no idea what that would look like, Um, and it was amazing. The job was um, to do prairie falcon surveys. Uh, We also worked with a number of other species, golden eagles, and we did some barn owl work, Um, but I was amazed that um, our study area for that project was about 40 miles of the canyon, and there were about 250 territories for nesting prairie falcons and it's just amazing that you can sit in one part of the canyon and you can see six or eight different nesting territories all within view of one area. Um, The first day I was overwhelmed by trying to figure out which pair belonged to what area and I was like oh my gosh I might have bitten off more than I can chew (laughs) with this job but um, over the following weeks is just a, a mixture of the landscape the canyon itself And then just the density and the amazingness of the raptors um, just really locked me into something that I was like, this is something that I'm going to do for a long time.
0: So we've been talking about what makes this national conservation area unique. And Steve was talking about his experience um, working as a field biologist, um, working with raptors in the NCA. I mean, let's continue along that thread for a little bit. Amanda, what else is it you talked you know a a bit about sort of like your personal connection to like this area and how you grew up in boise but like for folks that are sort of looking at this nca and like the whole network of national conservation areas all around the country like what makes this one stand out
2: to me it's really the history of the nca um when i i think about the nca i think about um a group of diverse stakeholders recognizing that this area was important and working together to protect it. And it really starts with um, a gentleman named Morley Nelson who moved to the Boise area in the late 1940s who was a self-taught falconer and um, just adored birds and spent all of his spare time looking for birds and climbing in and out of nests. And and when he moved to Boise, he he started exploring and realized pretty quickly that the number of birds he was seeing in this area was unlike anything he'd seen before. And so he began working with the BLM to seek some sort of um, national protection for the area. And through that, um, some great things about Morley is he was just a natural born educator. And so he took it upon himself to really become a one-man traveling education show with his falcons. And he would reach out to the livestock grazing community and the sheepmen and the local um, Boise voters club. And uh, he would take birds with him. And I think that's one thing that the NCA offers that really is unique is we've continued that history of education with live raptors. And we have, um, right now, we have a Swainson's hawk named Marley and two great horned owls, Archimedes and and, um, Merlin that we take out into the community, and especially the schools, to give people that one-on-one experience with a live raptor. Because that's, that's what sparked Morley's passion, that's what allowed him to communicate to the public that this area was important. And that's why um, people worked so hard to protect it, because they were able to get that relationship with these really amazing creatures
0: totally and i mean that's you know that brings us right up to you know this present moment where we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the designation of the nca um and as you said the blm still does these uh, educational presentations with live birds um so maybe there's an op- opportunity steve for you to just tell us a little bit about like this event that is coming up really soon which is sort of like a kickoff event for this 25th anniversary celebration
1: Right, so um, the BLM and our group have events planned throughout 2018 to celebrate this anniversary, but we sort of wanted to get the word out to the public, so we decided that we should probably throw a party to do that. (laughs) Um, So we've got a bunch of partner groups that have come together that have some um, stake in the NCA. They do research there, or they do field trips, Um, and so we wanted to get everyone together and have sort of an open house to present a schedule of events and list all the activities that we have planned throughout 2018 to celebrate the, the anniversary. So we've got um, live music and food and beverages. We're going to have live birds of prey on display um, and a lot of interactive activities for kids and adults that just sort of show the focus of what the NCAA is and, and why we enjoy it so much. And we want to get the public involved to get out there. It's it's their public land. It's, it's managed for them. So we want people to be encouraged to go out there and enjoy it and, and see what is so amazing about it. So when and where is this uh, event taking place? It is a first Thursday celebration downtown at JUMP, um, Jack's Urban Meeting Place. Um, We have the whole lobby um, sectioned off for this event, um, and it's from 5 to 9 p.m. on February 1st.
0: So Amanda I, I want to delve a little bit deeper into the the history that you were talking about about the designation of the NCA because I mean this is what we're celebrating right we're twenty five years since uh, this moment when it was designated as an NCA you talked a little bit about the role that Morley Nelson played early on um, in getting that process moving but the history of how it actually happened is is actually like fairly complicated and um, and there's like a lot of politics involved.
2: Yeah, between really the time that uh, Morley started uh, working towards protection and the designation uh, spanned more than 30 years. Um, Really, he late 1940s is when he moved to the area, and the late 1960s is when he began working with the BLM on um, some sort of of protection and the interesting thing at that time was BLM wasn't particularly known for protecting areas it was a relatively new organization having combined the uh, uh, livestock grazing service and the um, general land office and um, so this was a unique concept for the BLM and um, the blm staff that worked on it edward bookers was the district manager at the time and william Miners was the chief of division of resources they understood that science was really the only way that they were going to be able to convince people that this needed to happen and so they worked um with university of idaho and with some people from texas tech and the fish and wildlife service to start conducting inventories of birds in the area and um discovered at one point they had documented 36 golden eagle pears, which was the largest population known in the U.S. at this time. And so a- after kind of that, that effort to do the initial inventory, they were able to get it dedicated as the Snake River Natural Area in the early 1970s. And that was a big event. The Secretary of Interior at the time flew to Boise, um, Governor Andrus, was there and had a dedication at the place we call Dedication Point right now to really set this area aside specifically for wildlife protection. Um, and then being kind of a new concept for the BLM, uh, they they really understood again that science was important and they started what would be known as the Raptor Research Project, which was an effort to inventory the area to um, figure out what it was about the area and the habitat necessary to protect these birds to inventory cultural resources, and that effort lasted throughout the 1970s and ended up um, documenting more than 200 pairs of prairie falcons, which represented at the time about 5% of the species' entire population. Um, They identified more than 600 pairs of raptors altogether, representing 15 species, Um, again, densest known population in North America, if not the world. Um, they also um, determined that the canyon wasn't the only important part of the habitat. It was really the uplands where they were hunting and the soil and the geology that created habitat for um, ground squirrels and jackrabbits, which were the major prey for these species. And so that, that effort lasted throughout the 1970s. And then in the late 1970s, Cecil Andrus became Secretary of the Interior and uh, continued working on uh, some permanent protection for the area and um, had proposed legislation to have it designated as a national conservation area um, which didn't pass but as the election changed and Jimmy Carter lost that election he realized that he needed to do something um, before he left office and he did a secretarial withdrawal for twenty years um, to set aside and allow more time for Stakeholders to come together to work out some um, some concerns regarding transmission lines and um, the Idaho Army National Guard. And so they spent the 80s resolving those issues. And then in the early 90s, the time was right. And um, Cecil Andrus was governor again. He worked with uh, Democratic Representative Larry Larocco and Republican Senator Larry Craig to propose designation, with which passed. With bipartisan support in the early nineteen ninety, well, in nineteen ninety three.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, the 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 sort of politics behind how it became designated is really fascinating to me, and you know, you like the the role of Cecil Andrus is is huge, right? And the fact that you know he served as governor and then he um, served as the the um, secretary of the interior which is the agency that oversees the BLM, right? So, I mean, that his connection to this and the fact that he's from Idaho and was Idaho's governor as well and played both of those roles is, is really interesting. But also, like, the, the, the action that he took in sort of his last days as the Secretary of the Interior is also really inter- interesting as, you know, Ronald Reagan and his administration was coming into play. He was obviously concerned that, like, it was going to lose the protected status that it has, or they would lose the opportunity to down the road designate it as an NGO.
2: And at that time it was a really controversial action. Um it, it it was hadn't been used before and um he got a lot of criticism for it. Uh people referred to Andrus's chickenhawks um because that was a common term for raptors, um kind of slang for raptors at the time. Um the congressional delegation delegation at the time was not too happy about it. Uh Senator Steve Sims found it to be excessive and arrogant. Um, he was criticized by Jim McClure also who called it arrogant. And so it, it wasn't, um, well received by all parties at the time. And it really did. He's kind of stepped out on a ledge because he felt so passionate about the area.
0: Yeah. And, you know, here we are 25 years later, um, since, you know, that moment. And you said 1993, when it was actually, you know, it occurred, it, it was designated as an NCA. um, And here we are 25 years later, I mean, celebrating this unique moment in history and celebrating this, you know, amazing natural area. And, uh, but also looking back at the history and the interesting politics behind it, you know, there's some interesting political things happening politically, you know, right now in this moment. And, you know, sort of, I I guess my question for you related to like current politics is, you know, I think a lot of people are concerned about um, public lands being privatized um and and i guess my question would be like is that something we should be concerned about um, in regards to like national conservation areas generally and also this one specifically
2: so national conservation areas um are a little different than like the conversation that's going on around national monuments right now so national monuments are designated under the antiquities act of 1906 um, which requires an executive order from the president National conservation areas are um, designated, originally they were designed under the federal land. Management and Policy Act of 1976, and then they get congressionally designated. So um, in order to make any changes to the National Conservation Area, that would also have to be done congressionally. And we've seen that happen a couple of times with the NCA. In 2009 it was renamed to recognize Morley Nelson and all the work that he put into it. And then in 2017, our boundaries were adjusted to accommodate the Gateway West transmission line.
0: It's a different process, uh, different political process that um, would have to occur um, if changes were to be made to this or any other national conservation area. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't make your voice heard and, you know, contact your local representative.
2: And I think one thing that sets the NCA apart from some of this larger national debate is the amount of work that we do with our partners. I think had the NCA been designated in 1980 when there was a fair amount of controversy with it, the outcome would have been different than when it was designated in 1993 after they'd had an opportunity to bring everyone to the table and do some studies on military training and transmission lines. And, and so the NCA has had an incredible amount of community and stakeholder support since its designation and we still work very closely with our stakeholders um idaho power the idaho army national guard our livestock grazing permittees Um, i think that we have an incredible amount of community support which is beneficial to any segment of public land
0: Absolutely. We're here celebrating 25 years of, you know, building these partnerships that you discussed and celebrating the continued conservation uh, and and management of this, this unique piece of public land. And we're trying to raise awareness, um, you know, about uh, this unique area that people here in Boise have the opportunity to appreciate. One of the things that I think is particularly interesting about the NCA is the fact that the boundaries of the nca were oh, yeah. created based upon yep. the the habitat requirements of the prairie falcon right yeah
1: yeah there is a actually i think it's a radio telemetry study where they they outfitted several pairs of prairie falcons with radio telemetry units and then so the canyon's really important because it's the nesting area that's where you put your nest that's where you raise your young but there's several other things that you need prey base so what part of the of the landscape were these birds utilizing to bring food home to raise their young and so with radio telemetry studies you can really measure what areas um, species are using and then that data was used to sort of create the original boundary um, of at least the natural area if not the NCA?
2: The the actual NCA, and it's it's really unique in that it's one of the few administratively designated areas I'm aware of where the boundaries really are driven by the science of the resources that it's trying to protect.
0: Yeah, and that strikes me as like, well, yeah, that's of course that's how you should designate it, right? But, I mean, often those decisions are made, like, you know, for a whole variety of, of other reasons.
2: Or without the information. And so sure. really the way the NCA was pro- approached is that they were going to get the science first and then they were going to make the decisions based on that science
1: right right awesome yeah i've heard this analogy a couple times i can't i I don't know who to credit for it but um some people talk about the nca as as a metaphor of it's the uh, apartment complex and the grocery store so we know the canyon is the apartment complex where you can fit a ton of nesting pairs in one small area but you also need to protect the grocery store. So where do these birds go to get their food? And I think for people that are not wildlife biologists, um, that is a really nice metaphor to to for them to understand why the area was set up the way it was.
0: Totally, and you know that sort of brings me to a question about sort of ongoing, you know, science and and research uh, going on within the NCA, and you know. Steve, I know that this was uh, something, well, I mean, you mentioned that you uh, worked as a field biologist um, for a season um, on this long-running research project looking at prairie falcons in the NCA,
1: right? Yeah, as far as I know, I think it was a 15-year study up to the point that, that I was a part of it, and mm-hmm. 2003 was the year that I came to work on that project.
0: hmm and so, uh, you know, prairie falcons are the species that you know we talked about how the it was it was this species right that determined the boundary right the the habitat requirements of the prairie falcon because Amanda as you mentioned before like a, sh- a very significant percentage of the entire population of this species nests within the NCA um, so the prairie falcon is sort of seen as like uh, flagship species yes the, yeah absolutely absolutely but that. Long-running research project looking at prairie falcons' behavior in the NCA is is no longer
1: going on. Right, two thousand and three was actually the last year that that species w- was monitored, um, and and there's a there's a lot of reasons for that. It's a very expensive project. Um, prairie falcons are not; they don't build nests. Um, they are. Scrape nesters, so they just put their eggs right on a ledge. Um, so a lot of times that's in a cavity or in a crevice that you can't see from just being on the canyon floor or the canyon rim. So if you were looking at golden eagles, for instance, their nests are gigantic. They're very conspicuous. Um, you can see how many kids are in the nest, how many young are in the nest. Mm. Uh, you can see the activities of the adults. But with prairie falcons, they find a little crevice or a cavity, and they go in and they disappear. So if, if you're wanting to look at nesting success um did they have any young leave the nest that year and then productivity which is how many young left the nest um you have to do a lot of labor intensive hours of being out there and monitoring it takes a large crew access is really hard um we're on boats a lot of time we get dropped off and you survey your section and then someone comes at the end of the day to pick you up um so it's a big project and that you're looking at 200 to 250 pairs of birds and then you're having to spend a lot of hours per territory to monitor so um, that's something that's in our sort of long to medium term goals we would love to get that project up and running again um, we're starting with a with a few species that are easier to monitor and trying to get our feet on the ground as a group um, but that's definitely something that we would like to see happening again and happening regularly uh, It's a really important species for the NCA, so it's really important for us to know uh, how their numbers are doing.
0: Right. As you said, sort of the flagship species of this NCA. I mean, that's what determined the actual boundaries of this area. Um, And, and, you know, I mean, I know this this sort of, I guess, brings up the relationship between um, the BLM and this new friends group, right? Because, I mean, I know that, I mean, I know for you personally, Steve, that like, as you said, a part of, you know, the inspiration behind starting this friends group was like, well, this long-running prairie falcon study, and the prairie falcon is the flagship species for the NCA, so, like, we gotta get this going again, you know? And, I mean, I know that, like, and and this process that occurred um, that, you know, established this friends group, this new nonprofit, I mean, there was a lot of, like, facilitation with BLM and a lot of sort of input of, like, oh, well, we could use help in, like, this area and this area. Um, So maybe we can just talk a little bit about, like, you know, what that relationship looks like um, so that people understand, um, you know, uh, who's responsible for what and and how this is, like, sort of mutually beneficial.
2: For BLM, it certainly is... um a capacity adding relationship, and also um, it increases our ability to um, do outreach um, for pe- for really people that can belong to the friends group or out in the community, and they're talking about the NCA and they're talking about why it's important to them and the activities they do out there, and um, that word of mouth in in communicating to people the benefits of public land and and what you can do out there is is so important Um, but also the capacity building like Steve said Um, we on the NCA specifically we have a very small staff Um, we have besides myself four permanent employees and then occasionally we can get a seasonal or or two so our capacity is is somewhat limited to take on these um, huge projects and we've been very fortunate in that we have good agency partners with the United States Geological Service Idaho Fish and Game, um, Fish and Wildlife Service that also help add to our capacity. But having one more, you know, quiver um, to try to get our hands wrapped around um, both the um, data out there and the community outreach is is very important.
1: Yeah, we're really excited about the relationship we have with BLM. Um, I know several other friends groups um, for NCAs around the country don't quite have the um nice relationship that we have um and so we've been blm has supported us as a new group um, and we're happy that we can sort of facilitate and and take on some activities that might be harder for them to do um so we've gotten a lot of support from blm and we're very happy about that and we're just looking for more ways to partner um more partner groups to bring in and more ways to to sort of spread the word of of the NCA.
0: I'm going to mention this because I think that there's maybe a little bit of confusion within the Boise community about what the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey NCA is. Um, and I think part of that confusion is based around the fact that Boise is also home to the World Center for Birds of Prey, which is the headquarters for the Peregrine Fund, which is not the Morley Nelson Snake for Birds of Prey NCA but it has a similar name which is like maybe confusing and I have a number of friends who have told me that they've like driven to one area thinking it was the other one
2: we have a really great relationship with the Peregrine Fund and the World Center and actually Morley Nelson was really influential in getting the headquarters of the Peregrine Fund to Boise I mean he, he talked to them about not only the resources of the NCA, but the community. And so um, we've worked closely with the Peregrine Fund for a number of years. They were certainly one of the stakeholders that was really that were really influential in getting the designation um, but we do get a lot of questions particularly with our outreach with live birds my environmental education specialist gets asked if she works for the world center all of the time and so really the distinction is that um, the peregrine fund is a nonprofit um, that does advocacy work for um, birds worldwide and they have the, their world center here in boise which is a, an amazing visitor center and then we as part of the bureau of land management manage public land. And so about half a million acres south of Boise um, with a whole variety of activities that occur on there. And we do get out in the community like the World Center and do a lot of outreach, but organizationally we are distinct.
0: Absolutely. But at the same time, I mean, this is all part of the bigger picture of like what makes Boise a really unique place for raptors, right? And not only do we have the Morley Nelson Stinker for Birds of Prey NCA, um, which is this area that, you know, holds these unbelievably high densities of nesting raptors um, that's extremely unique. But we also have the headquarters for the World Center for Birds of Prey, which, as you said, does global raptor conservation work. Um, and as Steve mentioned, Steve is a graduate of the only um, the only graduate program in raptor biology in the U.S. Um, so we also have this unique uh, graduate program that's specifically focused on raptors.
2: Yeah, and the Raptor Research Center at Boise State um, does incredible work in the NCA. They're doing right now some really exciting things with um, looking at the prevalence of Mexican chicken bugs in golden eagle nests. Mm -hmm. And um, they do a lot of um, work around golden eagles and um, other species out there. Burrowing owls, for example, we have some research going on out there. And so, again, that's one of the, the the things that makes the NCA unique is the amount of science mm-hmm. that we have going on there, and that's really a function of organizations like Boise State University and USGS. Um, really, seeing the NCA as an opportunity to um, learn about um, birds of prey and habitat in an area that you can't find anywhere else.
0: Absolutely. And that collaboration between these different organizations is, is really important as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's just good for people in Boise to know that, like, if you live here, you live in a really special place on the planet for Raptors. So get out there, get out into the NCA and and observe them because it's special. So, yeah, fantastic. I mean, thanks. Thanks a lot to both of you for coming on the show and sharing all this Really fantastic information. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting year.
2: Yeah, we really, we're excited to um, introduce the NCA to people who might not be familiar with it and give those who love it an opportunity to um, have some more experiences out there.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot for having us. We're super excited to be part of this celebration.
0: All right. That was
2: our conversation with
0: Amanda Hoffman, the manager of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, and Steve Alsip, the president of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership. If you'd like to learn more about the 25th anniversary celebration events or the NCA in general, you can visit the show notes page for this episode where we'll have resources to keep you informed and updated. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org/eoc138. That's w i l d l e n s i n c.org/eoc138. If you'd like to learn more about the Eyes on Conservation podcast, you can visit eyesonconservation.com. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, working in partnership with Radio Boise. Our theme music is by the The Humidors.